I'm Laura London, and this is a special video edition of Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast today for episode 114 is Jungian analyst and author J. Gary Sparks in Indianapolis, Indiana. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from Bucknell University, a Master of Divinity and Master of Arts in Pastoral Counseling from the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, and a Diploma in Analytical Psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the C.G. Jung Institute, Zurich. His thesis advisor was Jung's closest student and collaborator, Marie-Louise von Franz, and his training analysts included Jung's grandson, Dieter Baumann, and Jung's close friend and confidant, C.A. Meyer. Mr. Sparks has been a lecturer and seminar presenter at the C.G. Jung Foundation of Ontario, Canada, and a teacher for the Analyst Training Program at the Research and Training Center for Depth Psychology, according to C.G. Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz, in Zurich. He has particularly enjoyed presenting online to the Cambridge Jungian Circle, where he learned that Jung's cook became a UK Jungian analyst. Beginning next month, he will be presenting for the new Jung at Heart series, a certificate program for non-clinicians offered by the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles. Currently, he is in private practice in Indianapolis, where he also conducts a variety of study groups. Mr. Sparks has joined me for three previous episodes, each centered around one of his books. Episode 2 on At the Heart of Matter, Synchronicity and Jung's Spiritual Testament. Episode 28 on Valley of Diamonds, Adventures in Number and Time with Marie-Louise von Franz. And Episode 35 on his most recent book, Carl Jung and Arnold Toynbee, The Social Meaning of Inner Work. In addition to his three books, he is the editor of Edward Edinger's Ego and Self, The Old Testament Prophets, and co-editor with Daryl Sharp of Edinger's Science of the Soul, A Jungian Perspective. He maintains two websites, jgsparks.net and jungandpauli.net, both filled with information, audio downloads, and PDF documents. Mr. Sparks returns today to discuss the latest volume of The Collected Works of Marie-Louise von Franz, scheduled to be released this Friday by Chiron Publications. Aurora Consurgens, a document attributed to Thomas Aquinas on the problem of opposites in alchemy, a companion work to C.G. Jung's Mysterium Conjunctionis, is volume seven in the series. You can learn more about von Franz's collected works on Speaking of Jung's special page in our blog section. Links to everything can be found in the show notes for this episode at speakingofyoung.com. This video interview is being recorded on Wednesday, September 28th, 2022, through the magic of StreamYard. It's great to see you again, Gary. Good to see you, Laura, and many thanks for the invite and the chance to reconnect and to discuss the things that I think we both adore, namely the life of the soul. Yes, yes. It's been, uh, I don't know, seven years since we uh, met in person. I bet so, it was, yeah. 
seven years, and we recorded the second episode of Speaking of Jung, and here we are at episode 114. I'm glad to see your success. Thank you, and you've been a big part of that. So this is our fourth episode together, and I hope that there will be many more to come. I do too, thank you. So today we're here to talk about what I think is a specialty of yours, which is the study of uh, Aurora Consurgens. And I had heard you say that the two most difficult books in this whole body of work are Mysterium Conjunctionis and Aurora Consurgens. Indeed. So what is it about this material that drew you? Well, I'll start off with a synchronicity. Yeah. About 15 years ago, I picked up a copy of Aurora and really wanted to give a seminar on it. It's not easy going. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, am I biting off more than I can chew? I just want to jump in here. So you picked up a copy because it was, it's been published a, a few times. Yes. Well, and, mm -hmm. go ahead. It was published uh, in the German edition of Jung's Collected Works. It was actually part of volume 14, Mysterium Conjunctionis. But then in the English edition, it was published uh, as a companion book outside of the Collected Works. It was published uh, by Pantheon Books in their Bollingen series. And then Inner City Books... Uh, Daryl Sharp's publishing company in Toronto published it in 2000. So that's the the version that you that's picked the one up? I stumbled on. Yeah. Okay. There's an interesting story why it's not included in the English version of collected work. Yeah. Uh, Barbara Hanna talks about that in her book uh, Jung is Life and Work. Mm -hmm. I hadn't known this until I was just reading her her book. Um, Jung originally wanted it published in English as as part of Mysterium. But apparently there was such a jealous uproar, and his heart by that time was very weak. He was suffering from tachycardia, which is a very high heart rate, which I suppose is eventually what uh, what killed him. Mm -hmm. And von Franz realized it's not worth upsetting him to have it published in English. So she agreed it would be published separately. But it really does belong, should have been published, and I had been reading Mysterium, and then thought, well, I want to look at the next volume of Mysterium, so to speak. And that's how I picked up uh, Aurora Consurgence. Okay. And then you you picked it up, you read it. Started to do uh, the thought of a seminar. And I thought, is it too hard? Mm -hmm. Is it too difficult? And I was sitting at my desk thinking this over, and I decided to go to Target for a little pick up some bacon and eggs and milk and things. Yeah. And uh, when I was at Target, I was standing in line. This was pre, you know, pre-pandemic. Right. I was standing in line and there were two girls sitting on the floor in the shopping line with their dolls that mommy had bought them. Okay. And they were having a conversation. And the one doll said, what's your name? And the other doll said, my name is Sophia. No. <laughs> Sophia said, and what's your name? And the other one, doll said, my name is Princess 
and I am a princess. Mm. And Sophia said, well, I'm a ballerina. Well, I was sitting there, standing there, and I could hear the woman in back of me chuckling. So I turned, you know, Indianapolis is an easy place to chat people up. Mm-hmm. So I just turned around and I said, uh, "Isn't the mind of uh, isn't the mind of a child beautiful?" And she said, "Yes, sir, it really is." And she began telling that her grandchildren and so on. I thought, "Well, let's just have a little experiment here." And I said to her, "Now, ma'am, I am I'm thinking about teaching a course on Sophia. Mm-hmm. It's a psychology book. Do you think?" that this is an accident that Sophie is next to? She said, oh, no, sir, it's no accident. Mm. And I said, so you think like like I do? He said, Mm. yes, sir, it's a confirmation of something. Mm. So I decided, okay, (laughs) I'm going to work on Aurora Consurgence. That's how I got inspired to to dig into the book. And it's been about 15 years I've been working on it. And for those seminars and lectures and so on. Yeah. And for those of you who are listening to the audio version, you're missing out because this is a video edition. Gary just brought up two dolls. And you know what that reminds me of? When we recorded episode two in your consultation room in Indianapolis, I also recorded a short video. It's on my YouTube channel, Jung and Laura. (laughs) You had you have the action figures of Jung and Freud, and you held them up. And that's exactly what that reminded me of. Yeah. And and the fact that they are apparently living in the other world doing research together. They're re- still researching together, a- yes. According to the medium that um, that um, oh. channels them. According to the medium, there's a medium that channels Jung and Freud. Tell yeah. us. Yeah. It's, you know, I was raised in southeastern Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I tell you about the story when I arrived in Zurich? Which one? Well, uh, <laughs> I... I I had no money. Yeah. And I found a very inexpensive but very nice pension. And when I checked in, the woman said, Well, why are you in Zurich? And I said, Well, I'm going to study at the Jung Institute. And she said, Oh, he sent another one. Oh, that's right. I said, What? She says, I go upstairs, unwind. I'll come up tomorrow. We'll have a cup of tea. Well, she came up, and her story is she went to Marietta, Pennsylvania, mm. which is just up the road from where I was raised, to a uh, work week workshop where mediums channel, and her medium channeled Freud and Jung. And they said that they were working together on doing research. They put their differences aside. Take it for what it's worth, I don't know, but that's what I was told. I love it. I love it. And I, you mentioned on one of the episodes we did together, uh, may, may have been 35, which is one of the most popular episodes of Speaking of Jung, episode 35 that we did on your latest book, Carl Jung and Arnold Toynbee. Yeah. You said Jung's problem was he only had one lifetime. I know. I discovered that all by myself. And I love that. It's so true. And I, included that in a Facebook post I just did yesterday. Oh, and one huh. of the comments somebody made was uh, alluding to, well, did he, you know, did he only have one lifetime? So I took that as- On this know, earth anyway. On this earth. Yeah. yeah. On this earth. I and as, as C.G. Jung. It, it's such the fashion today to trash Jung. Anywhere I go, Jung's always trashed. Yeah. And they always say, what's wrong with him? And I love saying, but I, understand, I have understood something that no one wants to talk about. 
He only had one lifetime. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't see Jung being trashed. I suppose he is out there. I'm not out there Here's much. When I'm what, doing public programs. When you're doing public programs, mm-hmm. what I see, my gripe is that people who I feel, I know I get a lot of people don't like it when I say this. When I see or hear people who know very little about Jung uh, lecturing about him yeah. or, or, creating videos and then posting them on YouTube. And to me, they're not qualified to speak about Jung. Uh, and you know, that, that sounds kind of crazy, but if a lot of misinformation, a lot of misinformation, I mean, if you need heart surgery, would you want a person who read a book about heart surgery performing the Mm -hmm. surgery? Or would you want someone who studied for years and trained yeah. With other heart surgeons to do the heart, to perform the heart surgery on you. So that's what I liken it to. And I'm very protective of Jung and I always will be. Well, and, you. you know, so anyway, uh, I keep interrupting you. That's and right. your dialogue. You, okay. So you, you read uh, Inner City Books um, Edition. publication of mm-hmm. Aurora Consurgeons and it is let, let's talk about what aurora consurgence is because it is close to 600 pages yeah it is the uh the vision well i'll let you tell tell the listeners well, what it is it's thought to be the visions of thomas aquinas on his deathbed mm-hmm. and this was around the late 1200s yeah he died 1274 The story goes, anyway, that he was riding, I think, actually, along the Appian Way and whacked his head on a tree branch and slowly then developed a brain fever and died. And on his deathbed, he began to have visions, and those visions were were, uh, taken down, and that's what Aurora Consurgence is. It's a record of his final visions. They were handwritten. Handwritten. We, of course, don't have that. Uh, A uh, medieval uh, historian, Danish, um, if I can say his name right, Axel Henning, A-K-S-E-L-H-A-A-N-I-N-G, has written a beautiful essay. I'll give you the the URL if you want to put it up. Yes, I I have. That was uh, in the proceedings for the 2013 IAP Congress. It is published in that, and I will have a link to that in the show notes. He he did a lot of digging. He he could find a manuscript back to around, uh, let's see, 12, 74, around 1400. Mm -hmm. So the original, of course, has been lost. And then eventually it was printed, um, or maybe not. Maybe the Jung worked from a handwritten copy. I, I don't remember. It eventually trickled its way to a monastery in Rheinau, Switzerland, which is just north of Zurich. And Jung, uh, going back to Jung's life, 1928, he finished his night sea journey, I call it, or he calls it the confrontation with the collective unconscious, with the unconscious. And he uh, got the idea, it's a long story, we don't need to go into it unless you're dying to hear it, but um, decided alchemy was probably something he wanted to work on. Mm -hmm. This is before he had done that. And he commissioned a Munich uh, bookseller 
to send him uh, any alchemical text that would have been printed because the printing press was then used to publish this stuff. And he got this text called Artis Arifere, uh, A-R-I-F-E-R-A-E, I think it is. And the very, it, it's a collection of alchemical texts. And the very last page says, and there's a text called The Golden Hour, which I refuse to print. Mm. So Jung thought, well, that's the one I want to investigate. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. he called the Central Bibliotheque, the Central Library in Zurich, who just happened to have a medievalist on staff. And the uh, librarian said, oh, yeah, that's a manuscript in a monastery in Rhinau. And Jung got a hold of it. I think about a third of it was missing. Mm. And again, another long story. Uh, eventually, his wife came across the complete edition in uh, Paris. That's how he got it. And then he eventually passed it on to von Franz. Mm -hmm. So it came to us through a, a series of events. And he was attracted to it because it really is kind of blasphemous. Yeah. At some points, anyway. And that's how he decided to concentrate on it. But mm -hmm. turned it over to von Franz to, to work on it. But he he liked it because it was blasphemous, but not for the sake of it being blasphemous, but because that there's real substance to it. Yeah, psychologically. If you'd like, we can go through it very briefly. The beautiful thing is, for me, it is showing nine hundred years ahead of its time mm. our current religious crisis. Our current religious crisis. And I could argue our current religious crisis is behind our current political crisis. Yep. What Thomas was probably a virgin. First of all, I should say, we don't know whether it was Thomas or not. That's von Franz's um, assessment. Whether it was Thomas Aquinas or not, doesn't really matter. It was a guy like Thomas. Mm -hmm. Completely split off from the body. Mm. Uh, if it was Thomas, the story goes that he um, was so spiritual, his brothers got worried and hired a prostitute to introduce him to the pleasures of life. And he picked up a burning brand out of the fire and put it in front of her face and said, get away from me. So it's, it's the medieval Christianity which has totally rejected the flesh, matter, the body, um, encounters with the material world. Mm. And that was Thomas's psychology. And the Aurora Surgeons is about healing that. It's about healing that. Really healing that. Yeah. yeah. So Jung searched for it, he found it, and he published it. And it, um, you, you saw something in it, you saw in it what Jung saw in it. And Von Franz wrote the com wrote her commentary, and that's why this is part of the collected works of Marie Louise von Franz, yeah. because along with the text was it written in Latin. Latin, yeah, and in that's in old Latin. Mm. And she was a, a classical scholar, so she knew how to translate it. That well, was she her could specialty. Translate it, and she says that uh, you know she. She was seeing Jung for analysis and paying for it by her translation work. 
I love that. So he gave her this, this manuscript and he yeah. said, would you work on it? And she mm -hmm. worked on it for 15 years. Mm. Uh, not just translating it, tracking down all the references. Yeah. And then gave it to her. I gave it to Jung when it was mm -hmm. over, when, mm -hmm. when she was done. And then after a while, Jung said, you know, it's just sitting at my desk. Why don't you work on it? I think he was sort of enticing her uh, to work on it. Because if he had said, oh, now Marlus, work on this. Uh, she was, oh, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. So he, he had her work on it, and then he gave it back to her and said, interpret this. It's that, that's mm -hmm. how she then began to write the commentary. So tell us, uh, for the listeners, why this was a companion uh, addition to Volume 14, Mysterium Conjunctionis. Tell us a little bit about Mysterium. Mysterium, of course, was Jung's magnum opus, his mm -hmm. large work. It summarizes uh, everything he had done in exploring what really goes on in healing. And he basically lifted up two, two metaphors, one the alchemical metaphor and the other the Gnostic metaphor. And the alchemical metaphor is about, is about pre-chemists, who literally cooked worthless material in a vessel, thinking it would turn into gold or a diamond, or, or sometimes it would turn into Christ, mm -hmm. some, some transformed substance. And it works in their mind by the synthesis of opposites. Two contradictory substances fight it out in the vessel, and as, it's, as that battle is occurring, hundreds of alchemists then describe what they imagined was going on in that vessel in this process of synthesis. So that is one of the fundamental paradigms we find in inner work that goes to any depth. People hit a, con uh, a conflict, and the temptation is to think there's something wrong with me rather than there's something right with me, which is in the process of being born. Mm. What we try to to help them see. The other metaphor that he used is um, Gnosticism, where God gets trapped in the world in the Gnostic creation myth. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, th there was a Christian Gnosticism. Then what the uh, Gnostic uh, believer does is live so that that piece of God in the world goes back to God. So God is restored, not the human being. And that is a uh, image process we also see in deep psychological work around the withdrawal of projections. You face a piece of chaos, you extract the meaning out of it, you withdraw the projection, and that adds to the depth of your own being. So they're the two main metaphors. Aurora makes use of both. There's an alchemical theme in it, and there's a Gnostic theme in it. So it sums up uh, what Jung is doing in Mysterium, and it deals with the psychology of the feminine. It deals with the psychology of the feminine. So you say that Aurora Consurgens is about Sophia. Yes. And tell, tell us what you mean by that. Because well, it, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. 
No, I just, I don't know. I wouldn't have put it that way. And when I heard you say that, because I, I would like to add that you mentioned in the beginning that you were considering doing a study group after you read the book. Uh, that's one of the things that you do that's so wonderful. And I wish I lived closer to you uh, because I would be part of these study groups. Uh, your study group on Aurora, you wound up doing it. Yeah. It took 60 hours for At you least. to cover the book. Yep. You say that in the last section and yeah. that you record these yes. discussions. Audio. You re you record what you do in the study group. And not only that, you make it available on your website. You have two websites. The audio can be found at jungandpauli.net, J-U-N-G-A-N-D-P-A-U-L-I.net. All 60 hours of your study group on Aurora Consurgents can be found there. And it, it's wonderful because you go off on tangents, you, you bring in other material, you take questions from the people in the group. And so you cover a lot of other things other than just focusing on Aurora Consurgents. And that's what's great about it. And I've been tweeting quotes for the past two days. Uh, I've been stopping the recording and writing down what I heard and then running to Twitter. And because it, it's just so good. The material is so good. Uh, so you describing it that way about Sophia just completely shed new light on it. And I'd like for us to, or for you to um, give us an overview of why it's about Sophia. And then let's break that down because, well, I have a personal connection with that and I experienced the synchronicity yesterday when I started listening to this. So I'm going to let you talk. Well, maybe you'll tell us about your synchronicity. Yeah, as well. I will. Um, um, let's go back to the, the birth of Christ. Okay. We don't really know what happened. Yeah. There were many <clears throat> competing, <clears throat> excuse me, many competing interpretations that evolved the first couple hundred years. And what we call the church was simply committees of um, men saying, well, this is what happened and this isn't what happened. One of the interpretations of the birth of Christ and the theology behind it uh, doesn't agree with that. And their view of God is that when God created the world, a piece of God got stuck in it. Sometimes that piece of God is God. Sometimes it's Sophia. So, so Sophia is the feminine aspect of God in the Gnostic view mm -hmm. that is lodged in matter. Uh, it shows up as speckles of light in the earth. Starlight sometimes can represent it. In the Aurora text, a candle represents it. And it is somewhat heretical in one version of the Gnostic religion. Sophia became Helen of Troy as a prostitute. So 
that really got the church upset that someone somebody would say a piece of God is a prostitute. Yeah. That I don't think that's a blasphemy because what it's driving at is religious experience has always been defined certainly since the Middle Ages as what comes down from heaven in a state of exaltation. Mm -hmm. Sophia is those religious experiences which come up from the bottom when we wrestle with our instincts, our collisions with reality, maybe a bankruptcy, maybe a divorce, those hard parts of life, those instinctual parts of life, we can see in the Aurora text also pave the way for a connection with God. And for my taste, that's what we desperately need today's world. Think of what the right wing is doing. The, this hypocritical morality that only good is divine. Mm. But the, the Aurora text, without falling into cynicism, says, but wait a minute, the body is sacred. Desire is sacred. Mistakes are sacred. And when she starts out in the visions, she's very unhappy. So that that aspect of the soul that's capable of reaching uh, divine, if I can say, uh, guidance has been neglected. And by the end of this uh, Aurora Consurgens, she's been healed. At the end, she's been healed. She's been healed. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh... When when I was listening to uh, the beginning of your your study group, uh, I called it a seminar. You talked about you you start at the beginning. You don't just jump right in. You talk about uh, who Thomas Aquinas was yes. and and you talk about wisdom. And and I just want to say I I really appreciate uh, you asking the question and then answering because I'm sure a lot of listeners have this question and people who saw what this episode was going to be about, you know, why should we be interested in these visions of a church cleric from eight, 900 years ago? Mm -hmm. What, what's, why bother, right? There are more pressing things, but you say because his issues are very similar to ours. I think they're um, exactly our issues. They're exactly our issues. That oh. the material that was assaulting him, and right. it really was an assault, right, from his unconscious, is the same material that's assaulting us, Absolutely. which is images of the divine feminine. Yeah. And the, the standard answer is, well, you have to morally control that. But the Sophia route is, no, you transform through it. You don't have to become moralistic. You can let it work on you, and as it works on you and you it, there's a change that occurs to both and what we have is then an integrated personality that doesn't need to defend itself with this hypocritical morality. So Sophia is uh, equated with wisdom. Yeah, it's the same. Greek is Sophia, uh, English is wisdom, uh, Latin is sapientia. Same, same, just th three different words. Three different words. Yeah. And 
you in the beginning were talking about stars are a very frequent image of uh, representing wisdom. Mm -hmm. And you talked about star dreams and that light is a metaphor for consciousness. Yes. And my own personal synchronicity, just as an aside, is that this is my favorite time of year because in late August is the helical rising of the star Sirius. Mm. Uh, in the, the ancient Egyptians saw Sirius as Isis, and mm. it signaled way back when, yeah. uh, before the procession of the equinoxes, it, 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 it signaled uh, the time that the Nile River would flood, right? And, and yeah. that was a good thing. So anyway, it's my favorite time of year because she comes back and you can see her, I say her, the star Sirius, in the very early morning before the sun rises. And because now when I get up in the morning, it's still dark out, uh, I have windows, luckily, uh, where I live that face east southeast and the south so i Mm -hmm. can see everything that rises and comes over so in the early mornings this time of year i can see sirius and orion which i have a special affinity for and orion is a constellation of stars with the belt yes orion's belt and sirius is a star and when I went to Indianapolis to see you back in September of 2015 to record our first episode together. It was around this time of year, seven years ago. It was, yeah. And I remember at that time, uh, we left Chicago very early in the morning. And I remember going outside and looking up and seeing Sirius and Orion. And uh, yesterday, uh, actually it was Monday, I found these recordings that you did of your study group on Aurora Consurgence. And I knew that they were there, but I couldn't find them. And then I was traveling and I needed to prepare for this episode. And I found them that morning uh, when I was under Sirius and Orion. That's interesting. And listening to you talking about stars being a frequent image of wisdom. And so that that was my connection that to me is sophia and definitely then to hear you talking about sophia and healing and this book really got me interested and so that's my little thing um Beautiful. you you also talk about how sunlight is an image of ego consciousness yes and how aurora consurgens means rising dawn right so it is the golden dawn and i was wondering if just as an aside do you know of any connection between the um the group the golden dawn the hermetic the secret society it's not so secret anymore the golden dawn with any connection with this material not that i know of okay okay all right i just thought maybe I think what von Franz makes of that is we are desperate for a rebirth of an understanding that's up to the challenge of the time. And we certainly are not largely as a society even beginning that process. We're not getting it. We are not getting it. Well, you also talk of the paradigm shift yeah. uh, that is coming and that Jung 
Jung was using a new language. Right. But actually, so this is today, this material is about von Franz and, and her interpretation, right? Yeah. Of Aurora Consurgence. So where do we go from here? Um, oh, fate. You also say that the study of Aurora Consurgence, which is the study of Sophia, is also the study of fate. Correct. And how is it that my life is constituted at birth? Because that's what we, that's what Jungian psychology says. And that's the foundation of Jung's work. And, and that is to me a connection to astrology is that we are born with a certain blueprint. Yes. We are born who we are Without and our, our job is to discover that. And that's the work we do in analysis. That's the light, the candle, the stars, and so on, that finding out who I am really, not from what the neighbors say, or not from what the church says, or not from what parents say, but yeah. who I was born to be. Mm -hmm. Nothing is more clear to me than that. Mm -hmm. So we don't create ourselves, we discover, we discover ourselves. I remember a woman going through a major change dreamt that she had to fly up to the moon to discover the story that was written long ago. Mm. She discovered it and she came back to earth. Mm. So right there it is. Mm -hmm. And Jung doesn't say that a lot, but he says in about half a dozen places that we, we are who we are before we're even born. Now, events can damage that and it can enhance it. That's certainly true can redirect it. But what we're dealing with, as far as I'm concerned in Jungian work is, who were you born to be? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what Sophia is about. Getting that question answered through the difficulties in life, not necessarily the successes in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she's in matter. Sophia is in matter. Yeah, you say that she isn't a spiritual phenomenon. She's a well, material she's phenomenon. She's a gateway to the spirit, or she is a spiritual phenomenon. But when we say that, we immediately think of this unworldly, bright, descending joy. But her spirit is ascending from the earth, often in difficult moments. And it's, I would say, it's the deeper guidance. The deeper guidance. I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Certainly today we've had enough of the of the bright spirit. We need to understand how the earth, how difficulties, how sexuality, how rage can guide us to our genuine identity. Not saying you indulge in it, but there is a way to work with it. That is the most important thing, what you just said right there. Uh, and for so today, I think it is, yes. <laughs> Yeah. Would would you tell us what are ways we can work with it? Well, interpreting events as if they were dreams. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I told you my, my Fox dream. No. When I was in training... Uh, oh, the first couple of years were very difficult. Yeah. Eventually, I was able to get a job. I got a nice house. 
had a very enjoyable five last five years. The first couple of years were tough. And I reached a point where I said, I can't do this. I, I just, it's too much. I, I, I can't take this anymore. Yep. And I had a dream that night that a little fox came to me and said, don't give up. Mm. Well, I lived at that time. Kuznacht is on a hill. Jung lived by the lake. I was living on top of the, it's what, sort of a plateau. And there's a forested area up there. And in the evening, I'd go for a jog. And I'd run down the road to the beginning of a far, uh, farmer's lane. And you could go about three quarters of a mile down the lane. And there was a, you know, a gate you weren't supposed to cross, but you could run, run down his, his path. So in the evening, I'd run on the road, I'd run down the, to the path, come back. So the night after that dream, I, I was running down the road and I got to the, to the um, path and a fox stuck yeah. out its head and followed me the whole way down to the gate. I could see it rustling in the bushes. Stuck out its head again. Followed me the whole way back to the road. Stuck out its head again. Mm. This went on for about four nights. Mm. This little fox was following me. I had to interpret that fact as saying, don't give up. Right. So reality, synchronicity, certainly one way that we realize that the psyche is not only inside us, it's also outside us. And so interpreting reality. I think certainly interpreting desire and rage. Why am I attracted to this person? Or why do I detest this person? Asking myself, well, first of all, why is it happening now? Mm. What mm -hmm. of me am I seeing in that person? Mm. And very often what I'm seeing is the next step in my recovery of this uh, inborn identity, or as Jung would call it, the a priori self, the self before experience. So I think desire, positive, and rage, negative, we can interpret. I think another way we can find it is in some diseases. Mm -hmm. I remember a woman whose husband was a workaholic, had a melanoma in the shape of the state of Florida. Uh, Ian McGuire, as you probably know that name, the English yeah. dermatologist who is an analyst, tells a story of a boy brought to her with eczema that psoriasis that formed a frown. Mm. He was, I don't know, say 10, 9, 10 years old. And in investigating the psychology of the family, she realized there was a great deal of sadness in that family. His skin was showing that family the sadness. So certain diseases can communicate to us. You see, these aren't necessarily happy things. Right. That was a painful thing to face. That's Sophia. It's not, it, it's not in a mood of exaltation. It's often in despair or heartache that she gives her messages. Um, and I think generally when things get messed up, I hate to even talk about this, but car accidents or bankruptcies or divorces yeah. can communicate something of our next step toward recovery of that early pre-birth identity.
and our role in society. Pre-birth identity. Yeah, it's there. It's there before we're born. And if we're going in the wrong direction, if we're meaning wrong, what I mean by wrong is if we're moving away from who we really are. Who we really are. Yeah. Then things start to go wrong. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you another example of a woman who was in a lousy relationship. Uh, Very, very lovely woman whose husband must have been just an idiot. And he wouldn't touch her sexually. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Well, she'd resolved that this has gone on long enough. That's one of the reasons she came into analysis. And met a guy that she ended up having an affair with. In the middle of the affair, she noticed there was something inside her vagina. And she reached in and pulled out a diamond. What she was learning out of this adulterous relationship, I'm not advising it, but it happens, was the next piece of her life that she didn't like her job. She didn't like the way she was raised to tolerate just anything. And she made major career decisions and personal decisions. Mm. Now, apropos, if you're not in Dow, she kind of liked this idea of the afternoon delight. (laughs) Uh, Because she could get away. She got a little apartment that was private. And she met another guy. Now, this was just for fun. Mm. And she again felt something in her vagina. And she pulled it out. It was a Disney disco ball. Mm. This was just fun. Ah. So that was a warning. It's one thing if you're following your eros in the service of your individuation. It's another if you're dissipating your energy, which you really need to reorient your life. And in that case, it's just a glamorous fun with no real value. Mm. Mm-hmm. So another example you gave uh, was Van Gogh and Nietzsche. Both burned up, right? Got burned by this. But Jung found a way to deal with that intensity, right? Yeah. Without getting burned up. Right. And would you talk a little bit about how you, I'm bringing this up because you said something really important. You said that Vincent van Gogh really was the herald for bringing Sophia to consciousness. Yes. I thought that was so interesting. If you would say more about that. Well, this Sophia experience, let's call it, is an assault Yeah. of some overpowering situation, not limited to, but I think typically erotic or something to do with desire Mm -hmm. or um, resentment. And, And God knows, look around, the world is just burning up with this behavior that's based on gimme, gimme, gimme. Yeah. That's the return in one form of the a priori self. It comes as a storm. The return, okay. 
you would think, and sometimes it comes as a nice little uh, letter from the other world. Sometimes it comes in one hell of a hurricane. Mm. And the traditional way of dealing with that is to repress it. Call it bad. Find the spirit and so on. All that does is squash that energy. Jung worked to say, can, is there a way we can receive that storm and not be destroyed by it? To receive that storm. Yeah. yeah. Let it come over us. And that's the very first image in Auroric Insurgents. Mm -hmm. A storm comes and Thomas is knocked down, or Thomas or whoever it is, is knocked down and depressed by it. Um, Jung's way of dealing with that then is, okay, we're burning up or we're, we're in danger of uh, dissolving in this chaos of pleasure or, or resentment. Now we have to start getting images for it. Mm. And you can see in uh, the Red Book, he wrote for, you know, 15 years getting images for what was assaulting him. And once you get the image of the storm, then you can begin dialogue with the image. What do you want from me? And this much I will accept from you, and this much I will not accept mm. for you, from you. So he allowed experience to turn into an image, to turn into a dialogue. And that's Sophia in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the other images in Aurora. So the first one was the storm. Yeah, uh, there's a storm. And I'll call him Thomas, the, whoever it is. Yeah. Um, the author, whatever, uh, is miserable. The next verse Sophia is miserable. She's crying. She has on filthy clothes. And she says, you can rescue me, but don't take away the filth. And I so love that. Yeah. Then she appears as a candle. And she says, Take me, this candle, out of its prison and allow it its freedom. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. That would be what I was saying. Can we get an understanding of the onslaught and turn it into some insight? Yeah. So that we don't have to be afraid of emotional storms. We can let them fertilize us. And by gosh, the next image that appears, she's pregnant. Mm. Eventually, the peak of the, there's, there's seven parables in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually, the, I think it's the fifth par parable is the climax of the seven. She builds a house and she places in that house the sun and the moon. 
And the phrase she uses for what's in that house is what eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man. Von Franz's interpretation there is, that is straight out of Corinthians, where mm. God creates his glory that eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. But Thomas's unconscious changes God into the alchemical opposites. The sun and the moon in that house. Yeah. So it's showing that the religious task is to start with what is assaulting us, living with it until it turns into a pair of opposites, synthesizing those opposites, and then what comes out of it is Sophia redeemed and happy. Yeah. Probably the reason it wouldn't it wasn't published in that uh, early alchemical text. The printer found that uh, heretical. Mm. Alchemical transformation replaces God. Mm -hmm. Now, that, I want to clarify that, that the root to God comes through in our era, wrestling with our conflict. Wrestling with our conflict. Yeah, which is something that's not popular. And one of the questions I have here to ask you, uh, because you're the person I would ask is why is Jungian psychology so unpopular? And I think that's part of it. It's hard. It's hard. And yeah. sometimes I wonder why is this podcast not very popular? I have lots of friends with podcasts and they get tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. And here I am with a few hundred and I'm interviewing brilliant people who have trained for decades and have the credentials and education. And I was talking to a, a close friend of mine and he said, this isn't stuff that makes you feel good about yourself. Not at first. <laughs> no, yeah. no, but it transformed my life yeah. completely. And I can handle things now. That well, doesn't what mean people want mm -hmm. now is is habits to live by, oh. rules to live by. Somebody else's answers, somebody else's, else's rules. Answer. You're if not finding rules, why would we your own. Yeah. And I think what people want is an antidote to the chaos. An antidote and what to the says chaos. Is you yeah. transform through the chaos. We transform through the chaos. We transform. Yeah, but, and, but it takes a strong constitution a strong ego a strong stomach exactly and a certain amount of moral integrity which is sadly becoming rare so what let, let me ask you that why do you say this requires moral integrity uh you it doesn't work if you're not honest with yourself with your analyst both yeah yeah okay We, we all tell fibs, right? but is there a fundamental core of that person that is trustworthy, mm -hmm. believable, reliable? 
So it, it, it doesn't work with people who are horribly narcissistic. I have worked with people who have been horribly narcissistic. Have you? Okay. But you've got to check, are they liars or not? Mm. It doesn't work with liars. Yeah. 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 So what else do we want to say here about this incredible book and and about Sophia and about how this is relevant today? Well, for that, I think we could go to ION very briefly. Sure. Tell us what ION is for the listeners who aren't familiar. Uh, Jung wrote three major works in his last, what, 10 years, I guess, more or less, 44 or 54, maybe 15 years. Um, Mr. Aim is one. Answer to Job is another. Uh, his work on synchronicity is another. Ion is, is an, actually, it's one of my favorite books as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's the study of periods of history. And I'm going to be saying what I've already said, just using different words. Okay. And as, as Jung works with it, Christianity was a necessary historical process for the first thousand years of our civilization. Mm. Had Christianity not come on the scene, civilization would have never developed. The Roman era was so corrupt, yeah. it needed a, a emphasis on goodness and world negation to keep us from killing ourselves. Mm -hmm. But that was one-sided. The first thousand years of Western history, this is a Western analysis, and, and I, I think analysis could be done for the for Asia. I'm just not that familiar with Asia. Okay. But maybe someday some Asian unions will. Um, that created imbalance because the non-worldly part of life doesn't give satisfaction to our need for enjoyment in the world. Yeah. Hence, around 1000 AD, plus or minus, and through various phases, we have the Renaissance, re, re, uh, re uh, enlivens nature, scientific revolution, uh, makes the laws of the universe its focus, uh, revolutions, political revolutions, the material world took precedent. So we had a spiritual phase for a thousand and a material phase for a thousand. We are now at the end of that second material phase. And Jung feels our psychological task is to stop the pendulum swings mm. by bridging, synthesizing the spiritual and the material and finding in the material the root to the spiritual. Mm. That's what Sophia is. She is the material root to the spiritual. 
guidance toward the fulfilling of our life comes up. And that's on an individual level, but Jung's feeling is that we have got to stop these swings. Now I'm putting some of my words into it. Okay. The nuclear danger means we have got to wake up. Okay. And that will only come if matter is reevaluated and the spirit is reevaluated. Mm. I mean, look what's going on in Ukraine. It's over territory. That's matter. And that matter apparently has enough of a spiritual significance for enough people to almost obliterate the whole world. We yeah. still don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. So Jung is saying these poles of physical conquest and spiritual meaning have been separate. We've got to find a way to unite them. And that's, again, what Sophia is about. Mm -hmm. And I think the nuclear question makes it all the more pressing. Makes it all the more pressing, yes. We so solve this problem before we blow ourselves up. Do you have any ideas of how we solve this problem? I mean, I think that a lot of what you said earlier was kind of at the root of how we deal with this, the how the individual deals with this within themselves. Yeah. He hoped it would spread from individuals to the society. Mm -hmm. What do you his, think? Yeah. I don't see any other way. Yeah. Uh, if it's going to work. There's a wonderful little book called Diffusion of Innovation. Oh. By Everett, I think I've got this right, Rogers. It's from the 50s. But it's kind of a standard and I think still well-regarded um, text of sociology. And he studied how does change happen? Anywhere from how do farmers change their grass seed to how do societies make major value changes? Mm -hmm. And his, uh, you've heard the term early adopters? No. Oh, never did. Well, that's his word. He says change happens when a small, maybe one person or a very small group of people have the new idea. And that new idea then catches on with a larger but still smaller group. And that smaller group then communicates to the world at large. So it goes through various stages. And I think with Jung, we have the creative voice. Uh, with the first generation of Jungians and some second generation of Jungians, uh, the, it's catching on. It's bigger than one person. It's not as big as a society, but it's, it's a community. The question is, can that community communicate in time to the larger world? Mm -hmm. Jung felt this would be a very slow process. Mm -hmm. That was his vision of how social change starts with one person. Mm -hmm. And then catches on. Mm -hmm. So going back to what we were discussing earlier about this work being difficult. Yeah. And the work we do in analysis, we both know, uh, is not always, not usually, let me say that, feel good stuff. Yeah. But I knew that it was the only way for me yeah. to get where I wanted to go. 
So I took it as my responsibility because I saw how my behavior was affecting all the people around me right? and how my being unhappy and unfulfilled was what I just said was affecting the people around me. So when I realized that all the ways I was trying to change that or fix that wasn't working, I realized I needed something else. And I found this path and in the changes that I went through, I saw how that benefited uh, my environment, my world, the people I interacted with. Now, that that is not, what do I want to say? That's not an easy thing to do. It's ongoing. Yeah. And I forgot, I lost my train of thought where I wanted to go with that. But um, Well, you started as an individual. Yes. And to, to constantly, for us to constantly be framing it as this isn't easy, this is unpleasant, this is long, this is costly, that's going to scare people away and has yeah. scared people away. Um, my comeback is always, well, what's the alternative? Yeah. So quite possibly we need to be framing this differently. I don't know, but I love what you said earlier about the storm and the chaos and not running away from that or medicating that, but going into it and that it requires strength. And I mean, I never thought that I was a strong person. I never thought, knew that we all have inner strength. It's amazing. Yeah. That we can tap. So what, what would you like to add to that? Well, we've talked about how hard it is. I think we could also talk about how satisfying it is. Yes. Thank you. And it is. There are moments when I look around and I think, I can't take any more beauty. Mm. Life has become so beautiful. Mm. When one feels I can make a difference, when one feels that we are generating, not just consuming Mm. and leaving something. Uh, When little kids grow up with a friendship with me and I watch them turn into beautiful people, partly because I've told them the truth about how I see life, you Mm. know, like, I don't care whether you're gay or not, or I don't care what your politics are. I, what I care about is what are you going to contribute? Mm. Um, there is a quiet satisfaction that comes. It surely is not in the middle of crowds, but yeah. a walk on the beach where you feel I, I couldn't be doing any more. Mm. This is the best I can do. Yeah. I would like to, because I'm known for jumping around, I would like to, for the listeners, uh, you mentioned Aeon, and it is volume nine, part two of Jung's Collected Works. And its subtitle is Researches into the Phenomenology of the Self. And there will be a link to that in the show notes. So what have we not covered? I'm just going to take a quick look through my notes here. 
And uh, I think we, I think we've done a darn good job. Have we? Yeah, we've gone over an hour, so maybe we'll wrap it up here. Um, yeah. I would like for you to tell us a little bit uh, as we wrap up about this new Jung at Heart series uh, yeah. with the C.G. Jung Institute of Los Angeles, which you will be a part of. I mentioned it briefly in the introduction, but yeah. if you'd like to tell us, because I'll provide a link to that in the show notes, it's open to, for anyone to register. I was out there, gosh, it's been about three years ago, speaking to the Institute. In, in, this is before the pandemic. Yeah. I just had the best time. What a great bunch of people. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've always liked Los Angeles. I know mm -hmm. it's got a bad rap. Um, but ah, there's something about that city, which, which is very charming, although yeah. living there, I know, is very difficult. Uh, so uh, the... The director, Christoph, has put together this program. I think it goes from October to June. I don't remember how many presentations they have, maybe 10 or something like mm -hmm. that, maybe more. Um, it's for people who do know what, you know, the basics, anima, anima, shadow. Uh, you might call it a Jung 201. Mm -hmm. Not Jung 101. It, mm -hmm. it assumes you know the uh, foundational terms, things like that. But then it's to help people build from there, helping them guide their reading, further their education without worrying about getting a degree or, or you know, CEUs or whatever. You, you can just yeah. go there, learn for fun. No CEUs. It is for non specifically for non clinicians, yeah. Yeah. and you will be giving two presentations. These are done yeah. on Zoom, or Zoom, and yeah. And uh, so again, there will be a link to that in the show notes, uh, and I will probably see you there because uh, I'm oh, interested great. in. I think the the first one you have for next month is something about. Jung's unconventional. What, what's the title? The unique of it? point of view. Uh, it. What we were. I alluded to it. Um, I'm looking at the four. What I'm going to call the four main works: symbols of transformation. Now that was done early, but was rewritten mm -hmm. after yeah. Jung's heart attack. Yeah. All these works were done after his heart attack. Ion, Mysterium, and Answer to Job, and. I think the big difference, which you can see in Symbols of Transformation as he separates from Freud, Freud does not see the future as having any uh, effect on moving growth. Jung is teleological, do you know that word? Goal-oriented. And so yeah. I I follow Jung's goal-oriented point of view in each of those works, how it evolved over the course of his, his uh, last four works. And it's really fascinating to see how that all works. It's how I can keep doing this work. People say, how do you listen to people's problems all day long? Because they get better. And they get mm. better. You can see the future working hard to help people move forward. Yes. We just got to cooperate with it. And that's what Jung discovered. And that's what he focused on in his last four books. Yeah. 
And one of the things you taught me, I have it written down here, is that Jung didn't start his major writing until he was 69 years yeah, old. Yeah, 1944. And that he was completely lost until he was 53. Yeah, absolutely lost. Yeah, and was. yeah, and he lived a long life, and that's another thing that I like to point out to people about Jung. He lived a long life. He had a lot of life experiences. He traveled a lot, and yeah. he studied different cultures. He ate well, drank good wine, smoked good cigars. He was not afraid of enjoying himself, or not afraid of women. And, and not afraid of women. So, right. So that gave him life experiences. And with that comes wisdom. And those are the people that I want to listen to. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, and that's the way the, the first generation that trained me were, they were just, they were just in love with life. Meyer would train me. He was 80 years old. Mm. Uh, feisty as all get out. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up here. Laura, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Thank you for, for joining us. Me. I'm going to read the outro. Stay with me. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Immediately after recording this episode, I will be live on YouTube at youtube.com slash Laura for a post-game recap. With special thanks to Chiron Publications and to everyone at Inner City Books, Liz Jefferson, Scott Milligan, Victoria Cowan, Ben and Dave Sharp. This one's for you, Daryl. I'm Laura London, and you've been watching a very special video edition of Speaking of Young.